Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Cornerstone. Well, it's good to see you guys. Hope you're doing well. If we haven't met yet, my name is Matt. I'm the Danville campus pastor, so I want to give a big shout out to everyone at the Danville campus, as well as everyone at Hayward, Walnut Creek, Brentwood, Livermore, to our brothers and sisters at CF Inside, as well as everyone who's watching online right now. And if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are in this series called Jesus Is. We've been going through Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, and uh, what we saw last week is that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his message that he gives, is a really important one here because in many ways he's sticking his flag, so to speak, in the ground, and he's challenging the religious establishment. He's challenging the religious elite, like the Pharisees. You see, Jesus is growing in popularity. He's growing in respect. The crowds are growing. People are traveling from a great distance to hear Jesus, and the religious leaders can't stand it. They hate it because they're beginning to feel that Jesus' teachings are more powerful and more popular than their rules and legalism. And it was their rules and legalism that gave them the power that they had. And so they're watching Jesus's every move. We're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. So if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to look it up on your phone or just look it up in your Bible because we're not going to have all the verses on the screen for you today. So you're going to want to follow along. We'll be in Luke chapter 7. And what you'll see as we're in this chapter is that Jesus has incredible compassion. That Jesus is incredibly compassionate. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to some of us here. It's possible that maybe you came here today with a friend, or maybe a significant other dragged you here today, or maybe you're here today and you have a lot of questions about Jesus. Maybe you're not sure where you stand with him. Maybe you're here and you would even describe yourself as maybe a little bit like anti-Christian. And if that describes you at all, we are so glad that you are here. And something that's very important for you to understand is that if you feel anything but compassion, if you feel anything but love, if you feel anything but acceptance, that's our fault And it's not our Savior's fault because he was incredibly comfortable with people that were nothing like him. 
and people that were nothing like him liked him. And they followed him. You can read it in the Gospels. Read Luke. Read Matthew, Mark, John. You'll see as you read it that people liked Jesus and Jesus would like you. You would love Jesus' honesty. You would love his whimsical approach and you would love his incredible compassion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at three different stories in this chapter, and you're going to see Jesus' compassion throughout all of it. So let's go to our first story found in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, so Luke's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. So let's not forget, this was a real event that occurred in real time with real people. And like some of us here, you might have experience of being in a similar situation where you're seeing someone's life begin to fade away. It was about a year ago, on September 12th, that my dad passed away from his battle with melanoma skin cancer. My dad had melanoma skin cancer and fought it really well for about two and a half years. And I won't forget when my dad was on hospice, my brother and I would take shifts, sleeping on the floor next to his bed. And I remember as we would fall asleep, our thoughts would be, about our dad. And we'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about my dad. And we'd wake up in the morning thinking about him. And I imagine that's what it was like for this centurion. He would wake up in the morning and he'd ask another servant, how is he doing? And he probably heard something like, well, he's not doing any better than he was doing last night. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's not responding. It looks like he's losing the battle. Now, historians would say that a centurion like this was known for being a man of action, for being someone who could command lots and lots of men, for being reliable, level-headed, and ready to take action. But what makes this particular centurion very interesting is that he values his servant highly, Luke says. You see, a Roman slave was considered a piece of merchandise. And so as soon as a slave is sick, you could just discard the slave. You didn't have to worry about the slave at all. And so this centurion already stands way out among the crowd. Verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus. We're not exactly sure where or how. And he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. So he doesn't go himself. He sends some elders of the Jews to Jesus. So you have to understand some of the context here. He's probably sending these elders because he knows Jews don't interact with Gentiles. There's laws against this for the Jews. And so he's thinking, this is my best chance at getting Jesus. I'm going to send these Jewish elders, 
and maybe Jesus will respond. So he sends them, and they go. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. But look at the basis they have for why Jesus should show up at his house. Notice the phrase they use. This man deserves for you to do this. Does that feel like nails on a chalkboard to you? It should. They go on to say, because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. You know, that's the way a lot of us can approach Jesus if we're not careful. Jesus, I deserve this. Jesus, you need to come through on this. I've been very good. I've been really faithful. Jesus, you need to deliver here. Well, Jesus doesn't respond to their thinking here. He doesn't need to. Ironically, though, verse 6 says, so Jesus went with them. Remember, Jesus is growing in popularity. He's growing in respect. He's just challenged the religious establishment. So his credibility here is fairly important at this point. And yet Jesus' very next move is going to disqualify him. Jews did not interact with Gentiles, and he goes to this Gentile's house. He's walking with them. Jesus, what are you doing? This would have been the social equivalent of a young, rising pastor giving his most important message of the year. Wrapping up the service, walking out the front doors, lighting up a cigarette, then taking a long shot of tequila straight from the bottle as all the parents are walking out with their kids. And Jesus doesn't seem to care. Or better yet, he cares very deeply about the right things. You see, Jesus just gave the Sermon on the Mount where he completely revamps their understanding of goodness and holiness. The Pharisees thought it was all about the outward exteriors. And where does Jesus put the focus? What's inside? It's a much higher level of holiness. It's much more demanding. And Jesus knows the Pharisees can't live up to it. And so right here in this moment, we begin to see that Jesus is shockingly free to break through the rules and the legalism that the Pharisees put on people. He's shockingly free. Now, some of us might be going, well, what do you mean he's shockingly free? What do you mean by that? Well, if you were here two weeks ago, Pastor Billy shared how the Pharisees had rules for everything. And they were the pros at making people feel guilty and bad. They had rules for everything. Like with fasting, on their more important fasting days, they said if you swallowed your own saliva, you were breaking the rules. If that's not an example of being so far from the heart of God, I don't know what is. And so Jesus, he's shockingly free to break through the rules that have nothing to do with what really pleases God. He's shockingly free to break through those rules. And we see this beautiful combination. Jesus is incredibly compassionate, 
and yet also shockingly free to break through things that really have nothing to do with the heart of God. Verse 6. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. So, this centurion has sent two groups. He sent these Jewish elders, and he probably sent them because he's thinking this is my best chance at getting Jesus, okay? So he sends them, and then he gets word that Jesus is coming, actually. He probably didn't think Jesus would come. And so he begins to panic. He's like, I'm not worthy of Jesus coming. I don't deserve this. And so he sends a group of his friends, and he says, go tell him I'm not worthy of this. Did you catch the difference there? One group, Jesus, we deserve this. It's an ugly self-righteousness. The other response, I don't deserve anything. It's a God-honoring humility. And then he goes on to say, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. Well, there's an explanation as to why he believes this. Then he goes on to say, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So Jesus, just say the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. So this, this man, this centurion, he understands something. He understood that the power was not in and of himself. He understood that his power was the power of his word. And he knows that Jesus' word is even more powerful. So he says, just say the word. Well, Luke records in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Some translations say marveled at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. Now, Jesus is not trying to throw Israel under the bus. He's just highlighting something very unique here. That this centurion, it's possible never saw Jesus do a miracle. It's possible he heard about it, but he's never seen it. And here, he's already believing that if Jesus just says the word, he'll be healed, while many Jews in that day needed to see a miracle in order to believe in Jesus. And so he's marveled at this. He's amazed at it. Then it goes on to say, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. You know, maybe you're like me, and you've read of that story several times, but we read it so fast, we don't stop to actually think what just happened. Jesus isn't even in the room. He's not even in the house. He hasn't even got there yet. Jesus says the word, and he's healed. And the way Luke writes it, we just pass over it. I mean, if I was Luke, it would be in all caps. It'd be in bold, underlined with a bunch of emojis, like the, the raise hands one, because it's a miracle. It's a miracle here. So we go from one household to the next. And like the last one, this one is filled with sadness. Verse 11. 
Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And the large crowd from the town was with her. I want you to notice where the emphasis is placed. It's almost, in, it's almost incidental with the dead boy. The emphasis, the focus is with the mom, with this woman. Because right here, we're already discovering she is a widow. She's husbandless, and now she's sonless. And all tents and purposes, her life seems to be over. There's no real future. There's no real hope. This is the worst day of her life. She is a prime example of someone that Jesus has come to save. And I want you to notice something else. Nobody has made a request of Jesus here. Nobody's asked Jesus to do anything. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. There are some of us here today, and you've come to worship Jesus. And nobody knows this sitting around you, but you feel completely unknown, and you feel completely misunderstood about what you are walking into this room with. And that pain, that isolation is paralyzing to your soul. It's paralyzing the very core of your being. And what you need to know is that the Lord Jesus sees you. And in seeing you, his heart goes out to you. Well, Jesus walks up to this woman at the front of the crowd. And he says to her, don't cry. Now, we don't know her response. It doesn't say but if she was anything like us, she would probably say, what do you mean don't cry? <laughs> Jesus, this is the worst day of my life. Why would you say that? Well, verse 14, then he went up and he touched the coffin that they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. You're darn right they stood still. This was an act of defilement. You don't touch coffins and you don't touch dead people. This was against the law. It's against the Jewish law here. Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you care about the law? It's shocking to see the risks that Jesus will take to express his compassion. It's absolutely stunning. Well, they couldn't have been ready for what happened next. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Don't you just love that? I do. Who needed the boy the most? His mom. And so Jesus gives the boy back to his mom. Jesus could easily said, hey, I want you to come now and follow me. You've got quite a story to tell now. 
you got quite a testimony. But no, he basically says to the boy, hey, you need to look after your mom. Because when I saw her earlier, ugh, my heart went out to her. I didn't want to leave her in that situation. And Jesus doesn't want to leave you in your situation either. Well, verse 16, they were filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Have you ever had a moment that you were filled with awe? Have you ever had a moment where you were like praising God for what he just did? Have you ever had a moment where you felt like God had come down to help you? In November, my wife Annie and I will celebrate our sixth wedding anniversary. And I am the stepdad to two amazing, uh, thank you, yep. I am the stepdad to two amazing uh, uh, stepsons, uh, Cole, who's 13, and Liam, who is 11. Uh, but before Annie and I got married, so way before I came into the picture, when Liam was about uh, 10 years old, he got sick. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. He, they thought they had this virus. But every time he got sick, um, he couldn't shake the chronic fever that came with it. And he would get a little bit better and then sick again. And every time he got sick, the symptoms were getting worse. Like, like they were starting to become deadly. And so they did tests after tests to figure out what was wrong with Liam. And after several near-death moments, they discovered that Liam had this very rare genetic cancer-like blood disease called HLH, which is 100% fatal without a bone marrow transplant. So the process to get a transplant takes several months. And so the strategy to keep Liam alive was to have him undergo several treatments that are similar to cancer-like treatments where they pumped his body with chemo and steroids. And as you can see in this next picture, his body just ballooned up. Because he had so much of that chemo and so much of those steroids in his little body. Well, it was during one of those treatments... Liam had been in the hospital for weeks and weeks. And it was during one of those treatments that the nurses ran into the room and they noticed that Liam was not doing well. And uh, he became very irritable. And one side of his face began to droop. And so they quickly admitted him to the hospital and they had him undergo emergency tests to figure out what was going wrong. And they soon discovered that the disease had moved to his brain and that his transplant, his only hope for survival, which was scheduled two weeks from then, was canceled. And so Annie was told to take Liam home and to make him comfortable for what would be the last couple of weeks or maybe months of his life. This is a few days before Christmas. And so news about Liam began to spread through family friends and family and their church community. And even though it seemed like all hope had been lost, Liam's prayer warriors did not give up hope. 
And so a few days after Christmas, a prayer vigil was set up right in front of Liam's house. And over 100 people showed up, people from all over the community. Police officers were there. A news station was there. The elders from the church came. They prayed over Liam. They put hands on Liam. And then Liam's parents began to experience, right after that moment, what would be the first of many miracles. The next day, at an early doctor's appointment, the number one HLH doctor in the country called and said, Liam needs to have his Hail Mary transplant. And so it was rescheduled for two weeks later. And Liam, nearly lifeless, receives his transplant and and almost immediately shows signs of improvement. So Liam then is now taken into isolation where he basically can't be around anyone because he's got no immune system at this point. So he's in isolation. He's only around Annie and a few nurses and the rare visitor. And slowly Liam is getting better. And his only real way to keep in contact with people is a webcam. And so as Liam slowly gets better, he starts to notice his grandparents' dog in the webcam named Pearl. And Liam's very first words was, Pearl. (laughs) Pearl. And to this day, Liam has not been on one ounce of medication. I got to show you this picture of Brad Crawford. This is Liam's donor. This is a year after Liam's transplant. This is the first time Liam got to meet Brad. And now in January, Liam gets to celebrate his 10-year anniversary of his transplant. Yeah. Liam is the happiest and spunkiest 11-year-old you have ever met. Okay, this is a picture of him in the middle, okay? I coach him in soccer, and I made the mistake a couple of weeks ago. I was challenging him. I said, hey, Liam, I'll give you $100 if you can score 10 goals before the playoffs start. We're three games into the season. He's already scored six goals. This stays here, but I'm seriously considering putting him at goalie the rest of the year. When I was studying this passage... It just struck me that Jesus gave Liam back to his mother. Who needed Liam the most? His mom. This is the worst moment of Annie's life. And for our family, this is a powerful example for us that Jesus is the healer. In fact, Luke's gospel, he records this over and over again. Luke was a doctor, so he's enamored with seeing this. Every time he sees Jesus heal someone, he makes sure it gets in there. He's showing us this is just who Jesus is. This is what he does. Now, it's quite possible that you're here, and maybe you've experienced that healing sometimes doesn't come on this side of heaven like with my dad. Man, we prayed for healing. We prayed hard. And we never got it. And I don't know why. My dad was only 65 years old. 
It's not right. Still doesn't feel right. But what I can tell you with absolute confidence is that the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. And so what that means is that my dad is experiencing healing now like he has never experienced before in his life. My dad is more alive now than he's ever been in his life. My dad's more at peace now than he's ever been. He's been more loved and accepted now than he's ever been. And so sometimes we don't experience the healing on this side of heaven. But now to our third story, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner at his house with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We're later going to discover that this Pharisee's name is Simon. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with her alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, it was common courtesy in the day, if you were a host to a dinner party like this, that you would greet people coming to your home a certain way. And so as your guests would arrive, you'd put your hand on their shoulder. You would kiss either cheek as a symbol of peace you would have already made arrangements to have your guest's feet washed. And then you'd have incense and oil or fragrances to be put on their head. And Simon doesn't do any of that. And so it makes you wonder why he would even invite Jesus in the first place if he's not going to do the common courtesy of the day. Well, we can only guess. It's possible that Simon was just one of those guys who liked to have important people over at his house. Or maybe Simon invited Jesus because he wanted to see Jesus do something wrong. And he wanted to bust Jesus. Or he wanted to hear him say something wrong. We don't really know, but it's odd that Simon would invite him and not do the common courtesy of the day. Now Luke tells us that this sinful woman, scholars are in agreement that it's highly likely she was a prostitute. That she finds out that Jesus is at Simon's house. And so she's determined to find Jesus. So I imagine her walking through the house with her face down because she doesn't want to see all the stares and glares of unbelief and contempt as she walks through the house. And she finally finds Jesus and she's standing at Jesus' feet when Luke says she kneels down at Jesus' feet. And what we know is that the tears are not planned. The perfume is planned, but not the tears. And the tears just start to fall. Why is she crying? Because right here in this moment, she's given the opportunity to do what she has wanted to do for who knows how long. And that is to express her gratitude for Jesus' unconditional love. She just wanted to sneak in. She just wanted to thank Jesus and then leave. But the moment takes over for her, and she begins not just to cry, but to gush. You have to picture the ugly cry. <laughs> Mascara everywhere. 
a runny nose, sniffling all over the place, and the tears start to fall on Jesus' feet. They start to mingle with the dust and the dirt on Jesus' feet. And no one offers her a towel, and she does the unthinkable. She undoes her hair. She undoes her hair and uses it to wipe off the dust and the dirt off of Jesus' feet. There was no greater offense in the Jewish civil or ceremonial law than for a woman right in this moment to undo her hair. That was something only between a woman and her husband, and she's doing it in public. This is scandalous. The social equivalent today would be like if she took her dress off. But her undoing her hair, that's even a greater offense to the Jews. And then she begins to kiss Jesus' feet and pours perfume on his feet. And all of this is done in silence. Not a word is spoken. Jesus doesn't seem to mind. Jesus doesn't seem to like kind of move away from her. He doesn't seem to kind of like, you know, go away. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus allows her to proceed. It's all in silence. It's a powerful moment. And then the dialogue occurs. Starting in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, or he said to himself, sorry, notice this is a thought in his head. He has not said this out loud. If this man were a prophet, if he really is who he's claiming to be, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Well, the word he uses for touching him is a rude phrase. It's an insinuation in his terminology. If he was really a prophet, he would know what she is doing and what kind of woman she is. But who is it that doesn't really understand? Simon. Simon would have been pleased if Jesus pushed her away or sent her away. So Jesus is going to show Simon that he really is a prophet more than that. He's going to show Simon not only what kind of woman she is, but Jesus is going to show Simon what kind of man Simon is. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then he exposes the thoughts of a Pharisee. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was about a day's wage. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I wonder if Simon really was looking at her in this moment. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You see, the message that Jesus is pointing out here is simple. Jesus is saying, Simon, she's a 500 sinner. You are a 50 sinner, but you're still a sinner. She gets it. You don't. She cries. You don't. She anoints. You don't. She washes. You don't. And we see right here that God is indeed a God of grace because Jesus doesn't send her away. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. In other words, when you know how much you've been forgiven, you love much. But if you don't think you've been forgiven of that much, well, you love little. You don't love that much. And so the question for us today is simple. How much do you think you've been forgiven? Are you a 500 sinner? or a 50 sinner. You know, the reality was that Simon and everyone else around Simon thought he was a 50 sinner because Simon was good at what's called behavior modification. And if you've been going to church for a while, you're probably good at this too, where we can get really good at making sure the outward exterior looks all fine. But Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew about his judgmentalness. He knew about his criticalness. And Jesus knew that Simon was in desperate need of a savior. The reality was that Simon was a 500 sinner. He just didn't know it. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Can you feel how powerful this moment is? Can you feel what it'd be like to be in the room? Can you sense what it'd be like to be this woman and to have all those stares and glares coming at you? And can you feel what it'd be like to be Jesus? Looking at this woman, looking at her and hoping that she could understand that Jesus sees her for more than her sin. It's a powerful moment here. You see, Simon and the Pharisees They missed the whole point of the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus' message. Jesus said to love one another, not law one another. If the goal was to law one another, then Jesus would have failed in all three stories. But that's not the goal. The goal is to love one another. Well, this woman, when she would put her head down on her pillow at night, she felt no peace. 
when she would walk around town and people would be talking about her, staring at her, she had no peace. And so Jesus takes this very powerful moment in her life and he says, I'm about to tell you what you already know to be true, but I'm going to say it anyway so that you can hear it, but that all of them can hear this too. You are forgiven. Well, a discussion breaks out over what Jesus has just said. Verse 49, the other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Do you see how this has been building? People are praising God. People are saying God has surely come down to help us. They are filled with awe. The news about Jesus is spreading all over the region. The spiritually blind are now seen. The dead are being now raised to life. And Jesus looks at this sinful woman and says, your sins are forgiven. There's a powerful moment right here. And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, how has her faith saved her? The same way we are all saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And what I love about this story is you see the story of the gospel here. And that is this, that we are more sinful than we could have ever imagined and more loved and accepted in Jesus than we dared to believe. That's the gospel. And as we look at these three different stories, really these three different households, we see one common thread woven throughout it. And that is that Jesus draws out great faith in people. He draws out great faith in people. And oftentimes in the most unlikely of people. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, I don't even know where I stand with Jesus. I've got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of doubts. I'm not even sure he is who he said he was. Well, that's okay. Jesus is okay with that. He's patient. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't think Jesus is going to draw great faith out of me. Not with my past. Not what I've just done recently. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't, I don't think Jesus can draw great faith out of me because I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about God. He just can't use me. We have to be reminded that Jesus drew great faith out of the most unlikely people. The people that thought they were disqualified. And, and maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't think Jesus is going to draw great faith out of me because I don't trust Jesus. Not after everything that's happened in my life. Not after all the pain and all the hurt I've been carrying. And what you need to know is that Jesus is incredibly compassionate. So tell him that. Tell him about it. Jesus was never afraid to dive deep into the, the darkness and the ugliness of people's pain. He was never afraid to do that. So you tell Jesus what you need and you watch and see how he draws great faith 
out of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for your word, grateful for what we've been learning today, grateful for the reminders we got today that our Savior Jesus is incredibly compassionate, that he's shockingly free, that he is the healer, and that you draw out great faith in people. Lord, we love your son. We love what we see in him in Scripture that people who were nothing like him liked him. And that Jesus liked people and that we would like Jesus. So Lord, help that to sink in. Help us to be the kind of people that when we read these stories about Jesus, we understand what you're really trying to tell us. That your goal for us was to love one another, not law one another. And so Lord, may that truth May the reminders in this chapter get deep into our hearts, deep into our souls. May we be the very kind of people that others would see us and go, there's something different about you. You have this compassion for others. Lord, do that good work in us because we can't do it ourselves. So Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in and through us. And God, may you get all the glory in that process. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said.